Luke chapter 20, from verse 20 down to 26. Let me read for us, beginning in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we have opened your word, we ask what, what, what these men asked disingenuously. We ask you sincerely that by your spirit you would teach us the way of God, that we might get a better glimpse of your majesty today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. By this time, it was around Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life and ministry before the cross, which meant that tension was brewing as the Jewish leader's opposition to him was escalating to its peak during these last few remaining days. And challenge after challenge was being thrown at Jesus with every attempt to condemn him by the things that he was saying. But as we saw in verse 48 of chapter 19, the people were hanging on his every word. And the reason is because not only did Jesus every time handedly neutralize these confrontations, but he always leveraged these occasions to make some of the best teaching moments. And Jesus is not just interested in refuting and dismantling error, but in revealing truth and the glory of God through the truth. And so here, as Jesus is maliciously challenged with this trap question regarding paying taxes to Caesar, he certainly dismantles their attempt to corner him, but more than that, he seizes the moment to show something more glorious than just addressing the ethics of taxation. You know, I remember hearing a sermon on this passage many years ago. I don't remember who the guy was, but I remember the whole point of the sermon was something to the effect of, hey, here's the big takeaway. Pay your taxes. Do it. April 15th. And yeah, I mean, of course, we must pay our taxes, every penny of it. But if that's all we get from this text, then what we have is nothing more than what could have just been a seminar by an IRS agent or your CPA. Now, you see, Jesus is saying something more here, something more weighty and profound than just directing our attention to our civic duties. Yes, he mentions all of that. And yes, it's important. But far more so, he is directing our attention to our existential duties our purpose, namely who we are before God and what our lives mean in light of his sovereign authority. And so this passage is not so much about Caesar, but about God and his rightful sovereign dominion over every sphere of our lives. 
And all of this unfolds as we begin from verse 20, wherein the scribes and the chief priests, they now begin to send spies to Jesus under the guise of sincerity with the intent to bring him down. And it's important to remember where we last left off in our study of Luke. Uh, Just earlier from verse 9, Jesus told a parable that was directed at the Jewish leaders, exposing their hatred of him and even prophetically revealing that they would resort to committing murder against him. And of course, they would suffer eternal consequences for it. And in verse 19, we find out that they realized Jesus was talking about them. It was kind of obvious. This whole parable was about them. So they perceived, but not repented. And in fulfillment of exactly what Jesus said, they schemed to do whatever was necessary to bring him down. And the attempt this time around was this. They would devise up loaded questions such that whichever way one answers, it's a lose-lose situation. It's designed to make the answerer stumble and fall and say something that could get them in trouble. And so the Jewish leaders would employ select messengers who would go up to Jesus and pretend to ask a sincere question with the hopes that Jesus would answer the question head-on and fall into the trap and get him out of the picture once for all. And so here's one of those instances of Jesus being bombarded with the cunning question. And verse 21 tells us that these spies came up to Jesus and began by buttering him up. Oh, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. You show no partiality, but you truly teach the way of God. Now, here's a rule of thumb in life. If anyone comes up to you and starts flattering you excessively, just run away. They're probably pickpocketing you and stealing your watch or your belt while you're blushing at all the fake compliments. But here, notice what these guys are trying to do with Jesus. I mean, obviously, they didn't believe a word that they were saying. They don't actually believe that Jesus speaks the perfect truth of God and that his words are absolutely authoritative and worthy of staking our entire existence and livelihood on. But they're saying all this fluff to lure him into giving an official authoritative statement that he can't retract so that they can use it as official evidence against him. Oh, good teacher. People hang on your every word. You mean every word you say, don't you? You see, they're effectively putting a mic to his lips and saying, uh, so, so this one's for the public record. What you say can and will be used against you. And the prompt was this, tell us, teacher, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, the tribute was the Roman tax that every Jewish uh, citizen was required to pay. And the Jews hated it because, of course, they were living under the subjugation of the Roman Empire at the time. And so it's not only that they hated paying this tax for financial reasons, but primarily for political and spiritual reasons. Because every time they paid it, it was a reminder to them that they were subservient to a Gentile nation and that there was no one sitting on the throne of David and Israel had no king of their own, but they were reluctantly living under Caesar's rule. And so the Jews hated this tribute and all that it represented, but of course they had to pay it or else the Roman government would come after them. Remember the the, the Jews, they were at the mercy of Rome for the privilege of living within the land of Israel and to be able to live in Jerusalem 
and to worship at the temple because it was Roman territory. They conquered it. Without paying this tribute, you couldn't live in Roman territory, including Jerusalem and the whole land, which once belonged to them, but no longer. You couldn't be a part of that Roman society and domain under Caesar's rule without paying the tax. But that's the thing. I mean, paying the tax, paying the tribute, it was to bow the knee to Caesar and recognize him as your emperor. And Caesar, of course, I mean, he wasn't exactly a God-fearing man. He, he was, instead, he, he viewed himself as God, a divine emperor among men. And so as you can see, this was a loaded, hot topic, controversial question. And it posed a serious dilemma to Jesus because this was the trap. If Jesus said, yes, it is lawful to pay tribute to Caesar. He's your emperor, so keep paying it. Then what's going to happen? Well, all the Jews who had been hanging on his every word would become severely disillusioned by Jesus. What kind of Messiah is this? He doesn't even fight for his Jewish people. He's loyal to Caesar. Is he, just the, is he just the pawn of the Roman Empire? He's telling us to willingly, joyfully pay homage to Caesar. And so with one word, yes, Jesus' credibility would crumble in an instant. And the people would immediately start turning on him. And that's how fever pitch the political tension was. To outright answer yes was to deny Jesus' uh, Jewish identity, rather, and to betray the nation. I mean, yes, they all paid the tax reluctantly, but no one would dare say or think, yes, it's right to give tribute to Caesar. Every Jew operated off of this implicit, silent no, despite being forced to pay. But the problem is, if Jesus said, no, it's not lawful to pay tribute to Caesar, I'm the Messiah, the true king of Israel, and I've come to restore the kingdom to Israel. And well, certainly the people would be delighted to hear that. I mean, that's exactly what the Jews were hoping for, a political savior. But then the Jewish leaders would have the perfect opportunity to report Jesus to the Roman authorities on the grounds of him being a political dissident and an insurrectionist. And the Romans were very watchful of such threats. And this Jesus would now be posing danger to Caesar's reign and he could be starting a revolution. And so, hey, perfect, let Jesus say no. And let's hand him off to the Romans, who would swiftly come and carry him off to trial and probably execution. This was the brilliant, nefarious plan. This yes or no question was the great trap. Whether he answers yes or no, both outcomes result in his public demise. One way or another, the, the Jewish leaders would get what they wanted. That is, Christ erased from the world. But as Jesus always does so masterfully, he confounds the counsel of the wicked and he makes foolish the wisdom of men. Because verse 23, he perceived their craftiness. He knew their twisted hearts, their serpent-like cunning. And he began his response by saying, show me a denarius. Now, if you've been with us throughout our study of Luke, you know well by now that a denarius was, the, was a Roman coin equal to about a day's uh, wage for a laborer. But it was the official emperor's coin with Caesar's face stamped on it. And it was this coin that was required for people to pay the tribute. And by using this imperial coin, a person was therefore willingly subjecting himself to the life of Rome. 
uh, fully immersed in the societal structure and governing order of the Roman Empire, and even enjoying some of the benefits that come from that infrastructure. And so what's interesting is that when Jesus said, show me a denarius, well, the the Jewish spies, they, they took it out of their pockets and said, here, bad move. Because the question is, hey, what's that doing in your pocket? Ah, so you carry this coin everywhere, huh? You use this coin. You're engaged in the commercial life of the Roman Empire. You, you fully utilize all the privileges of buying and selling and holding capital and making a living, all with Caesar's face imprinted on the back of the coin. It's his empire you're living in. And so why would it be unlawful to give to Caesar what already belongs to him? It's his currency and it's his, his empire. Don't, don't try to get me with this question, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? When your actions clearly say, yes, that's what we do. I mean, you hypocrites, this, isn't, this is not the gotcha that you think it is. You know, it's as if you're driving on the freeway and you see a car in front of you and you notice a bumper sticker on the back and, the, and it says, on the bumper sticker of the car in front of you says, all taxes are evil. I reject all government. Okay. What are you doing on the freeway then? Where do you think the freeway came from? Now, we could have a legitimate discussion on whether or not how tax dollars are being used or how much is being required is actually ethical or beneficial, but I'm just pointing out the the silly inconsistency of this hypothetical example of a driver who is so anti-government, apparently, and yet happily cruising along a public freeway built by the government. That's the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is exposing here. The Jewish leaders, they were, they were walking on Roman roads. They were living in, in Jerusalem, within the geographical region of Israel, which was Roman territory at the time. And they put themselves under Roman law in order that they could live there. In fact, later, they'll even appeal to the sword of the Roman authority and deliver Jesus over to the Roman cross. Because the cross was Rome's version of death row. And so Jesus makes no apology for the statement, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You live under his jurisdiction and government. If you don't want to give tribute to Caesar, then don't live under Caesar's domain. Look, you don't like California's taxes? I mean, who does? Then don't live in California. Go somewhere else. But for as long as you live in the state, render to the state the things that are owed to the state. Plain and simple. Now, as we hear all of this, we might wonder, why would Jesus say this, though? I mean, how could Jesus say this? Uh, doesn't it sound a little strange? It's as if he's conceding authority to Caesar. It, it, it's, it's weird that it, it's almost as if God is endorsing people paying homage to another earthly king. I mean, what about Isaiah 42? God says, I'm the Lord, and my glory I will share with no other. Isn't God alone the most high king? Yes. And actually, it's the very fact that Jesus could say all this point blank that shows how much God is not threatened by Caesar at all. This is not a competition. But that's how the Jews framed the question, wasn't it? Is it lawful or not? Does giving tribute to Caesar encroach on our allegiance to God or not? No, 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 that's the wrong question. It's not a yes or no question. It's the wrong question. 
because it assumes that God and Caesar are on the same plane on equal footing and you got to decide which way to go. No, you're looking at it wrong. Listen, Caesar is nothing but a meager servant, an underling who serves God's sovereign will, whether he likes it or not, whether he realizes it or not. He is subject to God's authority. You remember back in Luke chapter 2, as Luke records the account of Jesus' birth, Luke tells us of the setting in which Jesus was born, which was that Caesar Augustus, now the Caesar that they're talking about here is, uh, is, is Tiberius Caesar, but Caesar Augustus was the stepfather of uh, Tiberius, who was ruler at the time. But the setting was that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that everyone in his empire must be registered. And this decree of a mandatory census, it was not just for the sake of keeping count of the demographics, but it was primarily for the purpose of levying taxes on everybody. And this was Caesar's way of flexing his power and authority by imposing heavy taxes on all within his imperial reach. And through this move, he was reminding everyone, you render your allegiance, your resources, your existence to me. I am your God. You owe me for life and breath and everything. And well, because they didn't exactly have the internet back then, in order for everyone to be registered, they couldn't do it from where they were. But the people all had to travel back to their hometown in order to properly register for the census. Now you can imagine Caesar watching all this unfold as as residents all throughout his empire began scrambling like ants at the command of his word. And at the sight of all, he was probably basking in all of his glory and majesty. Look at how powerful I am. Just by one word, I get the whole thing moving. I mean, this was his agenda. It was Caesar's will for Caesar's glory. But it so happened that among those affected by Caesar's decree was this little betrothed Jewish couple who were pledged to get married. And they were at the time living in Nazareth in Galilee. And the woman was mysteriously pregnant at the time. We no one figured out how because they hadn't engaged in marital relations. But because of Caesar's decree, which was intended to flaunt his greatness as the almighty king, this little, little Jewish couple who had settled down in Nazareth were now forced to travel back to their hometown to register for that census. And that hometown was the town of Bethlehem. And it so happened that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And so though being residents of Nazareth, though having planned to bring forth this child in Nazareth, they ended up giving birth to this child in Bethlehem. So that what was said by the prophet Micah would be fulfilled. From you, Bethlehem, would come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. The one who would be the king of kings, the eternal Lord, who is from ancient days. You see, even when Caesar thought he was achieving his own will and agenda to glorify himself, all he was doing was he was just subservient to carrying out God's will to reveal his glory through the birth and the advent of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. What the Caesars of the world mean for evil, 
God means and uses it for good. To carry out His redemptive purposes for His own glory. And what a comfort it is, church, in times such as these, where it sure looks like today, evil reigns. And unrestrained, I might add. And yet we can never lose sight of the fact that over against whatever happens under the sun, on this plane of human dimension, Christ reigns supreme over all. And his kingdom shall never be destroyed. Hence, Jesus is not threatened by the silly premise of his question. Because as Romans 13 says, every human government, every human ruler, they are all under God's ultimate ruling authority. God can raise up Caesar and God can bring Caesar down. And he did. Where is Caesar today? Where is Pharaoh? Where is Nebuchadnezzar? Their only lasting legacy today, as we remember them, is to be merely as backdrops for the revelation of God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm. From dust they came, and to dust they all returned. So again, Jesus was saying, give your tribute to Caesar. Who cares? It's just money. It's just metal coins. It's just paper bills. It's just numbers on your online bank account. Isn't life more than money? Isn't life more than food and clothing? Well, what is life then? Well, what's Jesus' complete response? Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God, church? Everything. Your whole life. Your entire existence. All of creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 24.1 In fact, Jesus had asked this question about the coin. Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Oh, it's Caesar's face on it? Okay, then give it to Caesar. Since it belongs to him, his image is on it. But by that same logic, the implicit question was this, which stunned the people. Show me a man. Show me a woman. Whose likeness does he have? Whose image is inscribed into her? Friends, we are made in the image and likeness of God, our Creator. Therefore, render to God all that belongs to God, that is, all your heart and mind and soul and strength. So whether you eat or drink or give tribute to Caesar or whatever you do, do all of these things unto the glory of God in obedience to His will and for His honor. Because there is not a single atomic particle in this cosmos that is not entirely and supremely His. I mean, do you see the mindset that Jesus was challenging? These Jews, they operated off of this assumption that Caesar's domain was completely separate from God's domain. And so is it lawful or not, they asked. 
But this very question revealed that they were compartmentalizing the worship of God, as though it were disconnected from what happens in the civic sphere or any other sphere of their lives. And they failed to recognize that this whole planet is God's sphere. I mean, quite literally so, because he made the thing, he made the ball. And as such, he is preeminent over every aspect of human life and existence and function. And so the real question that they should have asked, the real question should have been, Jesus, tell us how to honor God as I give tribute to Caesar. Teach us what it means to glorify God in our civic duties, in our family duties, in our workplace, in our relationships. Lord, show me how to serve you with my money, which is in fact all your money, not mine. Lord, how do I raise my children in a way that shows the supremacy of Christ in all of life? Because I know that even my own children don't ultimately belong to me, but they are your rightful belongings because they are your precious creation. Lord, how do you want me to spend my retirement? I'm retired from the job I held for many years. And I'm thankful for that. But I know that I'm not retired yet from my ultimate job. The task of doing the work of your kingdom with all that you've entrusted to me. And I know that I'm not done yet because you haven't taken me home yet. So teach me how to live. Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated to thee. Lord, take my moments, my days. Let them all, all together, flow in ceaseless praise to you. Let my life be a worship service to you, not just this Sunday morning. This is what it means to render to God the things that are God's. Namely, everything, all of life, under the rule and reign of all of Christ. This is the true life and salvation that Jesus came to bring. And this is the eternal truth and wisdom that made even his enemies marvel at his answer and go silent, as it says in verse 26. Because it is the life of true fear of the Lord of which these spiritually lifeless Jewish leaders knew nothing. Because all they knew was dead, empty, compartmentalized religion. And what a tragic thing. But the same thing can be said for so many today. How many people regularly, yea, even diligently, attend church every Sunday? But they know nothing of this real spiritual life of belonging entirely to Christ. The deep joy of knowing Him as Lord and Master and living under His gracious governing rule. And there are so many within the doors of God's church every week who live just a compartmentalized version of the Christian life where it seems that God's authority over them never appears to extend beyond the the boundaries of the Sunday morning time slot. That there's no sense of hungering to know Him, seeking His will for their lives and prayerfully searching to know God's purposes for them for the sake of His glory. But instead, it's, it's the typical casual American Christianity that says, I'll give God my Sundays, but Monday through Saturdays are set apart from, for me, set apart wholly unto me. 
And when it's all said and done, Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Why did you call me Lord, Lord, and not ever did what I told you to do? You kept saying, Lord, I don't think you knew what that meant. They, they were just empty words. Look, if this describes you today, you have to understand that the solution is not to just try harder or, or, or be pressured into mustering up more outward commitment. That's not going to last very long. What you need is not to try harder, but to understand better, to understand the gospel better, more clearly and more fully. Because salvation is not just getting out of trouble, but God's work of salvation is the sinner getting out of himself, being rescued from his sinful self, whereby he has been warped inwards and enslaved to himself and lost and ruined because of it. You see, you and I, we were made by God, for God, not because God needs anything from us, but we were made for God, that we would find our ultimate joy and happiness in God, in reflecting His glory, not ours, independent of Him. But that is our glory when we reflect His glory. I mean, have you been outside these days at night? Have you seen the moon? I just, I, I don't know how long it was ago. Maybe I haven't gone out in a while, but I just remember the last time I saw the moon at night. I mean, it was just brilliant. Just fascinatingly beautiful and bright. And yet, all the brightness of the moon, all of its splendor and beauty is only because its surface is reflecting the light that comes from the sun. The moon is not a source of light in and of itself. It's not meant to be. It wasn't created to be. But that is the moon's glory, that it should reflect the light from another, that it should reflect the glory of another. But if the moon suddenly began to assert itself as an independent source of light when it is not, and all of a sudden, it, it, it refused to reflect the sun's glory. It would immediately become nothing but a dark, empty void in the sky. No one would see it. And it would fade into the abyss, lost forever in darkness. That's what we've done as sinners. Sin has so deceived us into thinking that we are the center of our lives that we should govern ourselves, that we should live for ourselves, that we should be independent of any higher authority over us. But friends, we were not made for ourselves. We were made for the glory of God, and that is our glory, our crown, our worth, to know God, to behold Him, to make much of Him, and to reflect His majesty and supremacy in our lives. And yet our sin has led us all into the darkness of meaninglessness and emptiness. Professing to be wise, we all became fools. I mean, look at our generation. We live in the apex of unrestrained indulgence of the self. 
the spirit of our times, the message of our times is love yourself, be true to yourself, do anything you want, be anything you want. But for all that, what? It is the unhappiest generation. People are miserable. People are more depressed and suicidal than ever because we have cut ourselves off from the God for whom we were made. And as such, we are destined for an even greater eternal misery under his righteous judgment for our rebellion. I mean, think, what good is a broken mirror that can't reflect anything anymore? All it's good for, it's only fit to be thrown into the fire. That's logical, that's sensible. That's how things are. And so it is with us. But this is the gospel. That God so loved this lost world that he sent his son to redeem irredeemable sinners like us by sending Jesus Christ, who is the perfect image of God, the very radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And he came not to flaunt his own glory, but he came for the sake of sinners. He came to live on their behalf the life of perfect, spotless obedience to God, whereby in Him we see the human perfection of God's glory and attributes displayed. And He went to the cross to suffer God's judgment on behalf of those He came to save. And He rose from the dead and now calls sinners to repent of their sinful ways of living for themselves and come to Him by faith so that through Him they might be reconciled to God. And that in him, sinners might receive new life that is being restored to the life of reflecting God's glory once again. You see, through the cross, God has returned his rightful belonging to himself. Lost sinners, redeemed, reconciled to him in Christ, transferred from the domain of darkness into and brought back into his marvelous light so that so that they might be able to live to reflect it once again for God's glory and for their joy and satisfaction. This is what God has done. He sent His Son for us in order to inscribe and emboss into us the holy image of His Son that we might dwell in His light forever and that He might take pleasure in us forever. This is the gospel. And all this to say, the life of total submission to God is not some onerous decree from one who is like Caesar, but life under God's total reign is the very blessing of the gospel. To return to God, our perfect ruler and loving father. Submission to God's authority is the good news. Hence, what do we see in the Gospels? That Jesus went all throughout the land preaching the Gospel of what? The Gospel of God's kingdom. It is the good news of God's kingdom, of His kingly reign, and that we can return to it once again. Friend, if you have not known this good news, this true Gospel, come bow the knee to Jesus today. There is really no better place to be. Come to Jesus Christ 
and lay down your life before Him, and He will give you true eternal life that is in Him alone. And church, let all this serve as a reminder to us, not just of the calling that we have as Christians to live our lives in full submission to God's will and authority, but how happy it is that by the grace of God, we have been called. That His voice has called us out of darkness into His light. That He has called us, that He would call us out of death into His life. And by His mercy, we have been freed from ourselves and now we belong to Christ. And let me leave you with the words of the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. If you don't know what a catechism is, it's a method of learning very popular throughout church history by which you learn through question and answer. You ask a question and here's the answer. And the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism in the 16th century, the whole thing begins like this by asking the question, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? Hear the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you so loved a world lost in sin that you have given to us the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we know we are assured and we rejoice that you are not like the Caesars of the world who exact payment from their subjects. But Lord Jesus, you came to be the payment for us and to subject your glorious self under humiliation to the point of death, even death on a cross. We praise you that you do not demand allegiance with the threat of the sword, but that you have purchased and empowered our allegiance with your spirit. Oh Lord, as we now take the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would help us to receive these elements of the bread and the cup by faith and that you would use it to remind us of the sweetness of the gospel, that even the commands you give to us, they are all gifts from you, meant to feed us and nourish our hungry souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.